It's flu season. And 101 years ago this winter, the H1N1 flu virus arrived for the first time. Known as the Spanish flu, it infected 500 million people. It infected people in the Arctic. It infected people on remote Pacific islands. It ended up killing between 50 million and 100 million people. That's about 5% of all the people on Earth. And the thing is, the flu didn't do it on purpose. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. Hey, Akimbo listeners, this is Alexandra De Palma, the producer of this very podcast you're listening to right now. I wanted to tell you about another podcast I produce. It's called Raising Rebels, and it's a parenting podcast that centers Black and POC parents, but it's really meant for everyone. Each episode features courageous conversations with real parents. We just launched season two, and we'd love for you to check it out. Search for Raising Rebels wherever you get your podcasts. We hope that you'll tune in and share your thoughts. We really want to hear from you. So you can listen to it by searching Raising Rebels wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. What does the flu virus want? Well, it doesn't want anything, not in the sense that you want a back rub or a vegan ice cream sandwich. No, it wants something because that's a good way to understand its behavior. Richard Dawkins wrote a book years ago that has been misunderstood by people who haven't read it called The Selfish Gene. Genes don't make us selfish, but it is easier to understand how genes work if we imagine that they are selfishly trying to replicate. Well, in the case of the flu virus, a successful flu virus is one that can live in a lot of people. If you start killing off the people where you are living, well, then your prospects for the future go down, particularly if it had been just one order of magnitude more effective and had wiped out half or more of the population. Kill all the humans, you've ended up killing the flu virus as well. So what does the flu want? It wants to spread. And this is a short podcast about something else, viruses that are ideas. In his book, The Selfish Gene, Dawkins threw away a chapter talking about this idea he had called memetics. He said, what if we could understand the spread of ideas by applying the thinking of epidemiology? What if we understood the idea of ideas by using the thinking behind genetics? Maybe instead of genes, we could call them memes. And Susan Blackmore followed that up with a book in which she expounded much more detail about the idea of ideas as viruses. So here's what we know about epidemiology. Epidemiologists keep track of something called r naught. It's an R with a zero after it, probably because a British person named it instead of calling it r zero. Either way, r naught is the measure of once you are infected, say, with the flu, how many other people 
will you infect? If the number is, say, 0.5, what that means is that if 10 people have the flu, they will infect five more people, and we'll end up with 15, and it will scale down from there. If R0 goes over one, even for a little while, what it means is that every person who gets it infects more than one other person, and it scales to infinity. So in order to reach half a billion people, the Spanish flu of 1918 had an R0 that gusted to well over one. It was particularly contagious. And there are ideas in our culture that are also contagious. What makes an idea or a virus contagious are several factors. One is, how many times do you have to be exposed to it before you get it? Number two is, how long do the germs or the idea stick around? So for example, a tweet is here today, it's gone tomorrow. A tattoo, on the other hand, is seen by everyone you encounter for the rest of your life. So it's more persistent. And then the idea is, who is it infecting? Because the measles infects kids. Kids go to preschool. Kids kiss each other, touch each other, play with shared items. So the measles is really contagious because the vector on which it travels, kids, helps it be more contagious. So now we can look at what the internet has done. The internet is the equivalent of preschool for ideas. Because what the internet did is take ideas out of the library, where they slowly move around in books that are stored in basements, and instead puts them into a supercharged high-speed place where they can bounce around, touching people, infecting them, and then touching more people. The internet is a petri dish, a place we built to make it optimal for an idea to be contagious, to spread from person to person. Then we move on to this idea of hive immunity. Here's what we know. If 95% of the people in a population get the measles vaccine, even though 5% of the people haven't been inoculated for health reasons, they probably won't get measles. Because measles, when it tries to spread, there it is, trying, when measles tries to spread from someone who has it to someone who's been vaccinated, it fails. And because that vector is blocked off, it dies out. You can check out the show notes at akimbo.link to see what happens if we go from 95% vaccination to 93% vaccination. Just that small shift eliminates hive immunity for a disease like the measles. Just that tiny shift is enough to allow it to spread. And spread it will. If you are surrounded by people who have been infected by an idea, it doesn't matter how much you are protecting yourself. Sooner or later, you will get infected as well. So I keep crossing back and forth between viruses and ideas because they are similar indeed. What we know, for example, is that early on, people were super susceptible to spam, to spam that promised big money, to spam that was poorly written, to spam from Nigerian princes. 
And over time, people got less susceptible to it. They became eventually immune. The ones who didn't go bankrupt in the first place won't go bankrupt because they learned from the process. So over time, what the media is doing is constantly serving up a fresh supply of ideas, ideas that we are not resistant to yet. And the chaos continues because just as the flu wants to spread, ideas do as well. And this time, they are being created, engineered by people who are doing it on purpose. What they are doing is reverse engineering how to structure an idea so that once we see it, we won't be able to avoid it. And in fact, we'll have no choice but to spread it. That's a hyperbolic exaggeration, of course. We do have a choice about whether to spread it or not. So when BuzzFeed started creating listicles, silly little ways to waste time, if the people who had first seen it hadn't spread it, you never would have heard of them. But spread it, they did. They had a choice, but they chose to spread it. The question is, why? Why would someone who sees an idea online choose to spread that idea? Hit the forward button, the retweet button, the like button. Well, why did these sites even build the forward button, the retweet button, and the like button? They built them because part of what it means to be in a culture is that we get status and satisfaction from spreading a certain kind of idea. Now, different cultures reward certain kinds of idea spreading. The gloom and doom of, oh my God, we're all going to die. Armageddon is here. It's the end of the world is nigh. There's a fire in the movie theater. Works in some populations during some periods of time. In others, ones that might be more relentlessly optimistic, a different kind of idea is going to spread. So what we know from memetics, just as we know from genetics, the place we are living, the culture that we are in, matters to figure out what kind of idea or virus or organism is going to succeed or spread. I don't think it's an accident that we call it the culture. It's a living, breathing thing. If you are a fish and you have fish grandchildren and those fish grandchildren have mutated to survive better in water that's warm, and the planet warms up the water, your grandchildren are going to do better than the other fish that want the water to be cold. On the other hand, if the water is chilling because the ice caps are melting, making the water where you live as a fish colder, your grandchildren are doomed. That mutation did not help them. The culture, the place you live in that water, has changed, and so their phenotype, their genotype, the kind of organism they were born to be will succeed or fail to succeed. The thing is, the only way to mess with genes is to have kids. But we get to mess with ideas all we want. And so the race is on to figure out what is the culture like right now? What idea will we spread to which people who are hoping to hear from us, so that when those people hear that idea, like the Spanish flu, but hopefully far more benign, these people will choose to spread it. 
they will spread it because it's good for them. And what makes it good for them is based on who they're spreading it to and what sort of feedback they get from those folks. But here's the key. As we spread ideas, we are changing the culture because the culture is nothing but shared ideas. And so we have this recursion. Ideas change the culture, culture changes the ideas. Ideas change the culture, culture changes the ideas. So if we're stuck saying no, the ideas we want to traffic in are precisely the same ideas that worked 30 years ago, our ideas aren't going to spread. If we are trying to spread ideas because they will help us selfishly, but will not help the person we want to spread them, they will not spread them. But third, and the most important part, and the reason this podcast even exists, and I am coming more and more to the conclusion it is the compass point of my professional life, we are responsible for the ideas we choose to spread. And so just because an idea is going to spread, just because it will infect someone, or even a new term I just learned, super infect them, which means that in their weakened state after being infected the first time, they're infected by a slightly different version the second time, piling on over and over again until the organism perishes. If we're going to infect and super-infect our culture, I think we have to realize we're responsible and that we have the choice to put into the culture infectious ideas with a high r not that spread and leave behind in their wake a version of better, an elevation, an embracing of possibility. Or perhaps we just say, well, I'm just doing my job. And we put listicles into the world. And we put negative stuff into the world. And we bring things down because we can, because we got paid for it, because it gives us some sort of perverse pleasure. Well, as Mark Andreessen says, software is eating the world. And software is structuring our culture. Putting the retweet button putting the like button, building the dark patterns into social networks and to smartphones, coming up with what are the boxes on the form, what questions are we asking, how are we demonstrating status or non-status among the people that we serve. All of these choices are as important as are there seatbelts in the car? Are we going to build a car at all? Do doctors wash their hands after they deliver a baby or have visited the morgue. These principles, these concepts, these engineering innovations, they all add up to the culture. And the culture is a giant soup that organisms are living in, and so are ideas. And we get to bend it. We get to influence it way more than we would like to think. I know an eight-year-old who brought a yo-yo into school on just the right day. If he had brought it in a year earlier or a year later, if a different kid had brought it in, that would have been the end of it. But because this kid brought the yo-yo in on the right day to the right school, within a week, dozens of kids were yo-yoing. And within a month, everyone had a yo-yo. And then a few weeks after that, yo-yos were gone again. They come and they go. But someone went first. Someone said, here, what do you think of this? Someone started spreading an idea. And now, thanks to the dissolution of the TV industrial complex, of 
the three channels of Walter Cronkite. A few people deciding which ideas we would see. We're left with us, just us. What will we share? What will we speak about? What will we engage in? Because that is the choice of our time. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, go ahead and share this podcast or not. Whether it's good for you, it's up to you. We'll see you next time. A P.S. and a bonus. 20 years ago, when I was pretty much done with writing, after having done permission marketing and then had a whole bunch of speed bumps and other bumps in my journey, I got a galley of a book called The Tipping Point by an unknown author named Malcolm Gladwell. Well, it unlocked something in me. And reading the galley, I then turned around and wrote an entire book in just a couple of weeks called Unleashing the Idea Virus. I wanted to be sure I hadn't stolen Malcolm's thunder, so I sent it to him, and he kindly wrote the foreword for the book. Well, I needed to take my own advice, and the advice in the book was ideas that spread win. The advice in the book was we need to unlock an idea from paper if we wanted to reach people. So I went to my publisher, the guy who had published Permission Marketing, a New York Times bestseller, and I said, I want to publish Unleashing the Idea Virus, but here's the deal. One, it needs to come out in four weeks because it's very current, and two, I want to give away the digital copy for free. Now, this was before the Kindle, so there was only one way, pretty much, to give away the digital copy, which was for free. And he read the book, and he said, it's a great book, but we're not going to let you give it away, and it's going to take a year for it to come out. So I decided to take my own advice, and we put the PDF of the book online for free, the whole thing. You can find it at the show notes at kimbo.link. Well, because of when we released it, it became, at the time, the most successful ebook ever written because the culture was ready for that. It was 1,000 people, then 5,000 people, then 10,000 people, then 2 million people, then 4 million people. And folks said, well, how can you make money giving a book away for free? Well, I wasn't doing it to make money. I was doing it to make a difference. But the interesting aside is that then I self-published the hardcover, which went to number five on the Amazon bestseller list among all books. And then we sold the Japanese rights, and it went to number four. And more people called me to give speeches and on and on. But that's not why I did it. I did it because it was an idea I wanted to help spread about how ideas spread. Reading it 20 years later, many people will say, well, yeah, that's obvious. And that's the way ideas work, because it wasn't obvious then, but it might be obvious now. So where is your idea virus? What idea will you choose to bring to the world and put your name on it? Thanks again for listening. We'll see you. We'll be back in a second with answers to some questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. What's up, y'all? Now, Jada's birthday is on September 18th. And Will's birthday is September 25th. Right, so we've celebrated together for a lot of years, but this year we've decided we're going to do something a little different and radical. We decided we are going to donate our birthdays. And we found a fantastic charity called Charity Water. And they go around the world in developing communities, and they dig wells. And what we've discovered is that $20 provides clean water for one person for 20 years. 
Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth, this is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth, hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. I love to hear from you. If you'd like to ask a question, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and press the appropriate button. Hi, Seth. I'm Kalle Muller from Gothenburg, Sweden. I have two questions. I'm a freelance consultant. I often teach and facilitate projects and workshops based on design thinking. And I often have an emphasis on the mindset aspects of that subject. And I found that your phrase, who is it for and what is it for, to me really captures the essence of design thinking. My second question comes from having English as a second language. When I translated the phrase, people like us do things like this, I found some nuances in that expression. And the first is that people like us do things like this. To me, that is an emphasis on the outcome or the actions. And the second one is, People like us do things like this, which is an emphasis on rituals or the way that things are done. I would really love to hear your perspective on the balance or the interplay between these two in establishing culture, and I'm also curious on how that phrase emerged. Thank you very much for your brilliant podcast. It is part of making my making Wednesdays my favorite part of the week. So thank you very much. Bye. I love thoughts about how we pronounce a sentence we've seen in writing. People like us do things like this. Is it people like us do things like this? Is it people like us do things like this? Or is it people like us do things like this? Well, in this case, they almost all mean the same thing, which is that people like us is flexible. People like us means that in this moment— I am seeing you, teaching you, accepting you, embracing you, inviting you to be part of people like us. And things like this, or things like this, they all mean we took an action. We made a change happen. We have a ritual. There's a way that we are in the world. We meaning people like us. So it's a badge. It's a totem. It's a way of identifying yourself as part of us. And I think that's the simplest explanation of what culture is. Culture is people like us, you know, the ones like us. And how do you know you're one of us? Because you do things like this. Hi, Seth. This is Johnny on the Australian Sunshine Coast. I was listening to your podcast recently about um, the free market has a new enemy and it might be capitalism. You talked about uh, when you have a game, you've got to have boundaries, and that's what makes the game worth playing. I'm wondering if you're an advocate of those boundaries being government regulation or what bodies would regulate a game to really allow for a free market uh, in which the skills of the players uh, can compete more evenly on an even field. Thanks, Seth. Love your stuff. Thank you for this question. Off the top of my head, here's a few. We have rules about which laws you're not supposed to break. We have rules about how you're supposed to hire people fairly. We have rules about paying people 
a living wage, no indentured servitude. We have rules about building a workplace where you're not having people chop off their hands using equipment that isn't properly designed. We have rules about not dumping your effluent into the river and poisoning people. We have rules about not bribing elected officials. We have rules about not hiding when the inspector comes. All of these rules are accepted, and none of them were accepted 300 years ago. 300 years ago, it was viewed as an intrusion to say, you can't hire an 11-year-old. It was viewed as an intrusion to say, you can't lock the emergency door, and if there are women in the factory and there's a fire, well, sorry, they're just going to die. We didn't want those sorts of incursions on, quote, free enterprise, and so it was fought. But one by one, tragedy after tragedy, democracy wins out. And what happens is the people, the people realize that they are in the majority. The owners, the owners, not so much. But more important, what people realize is putting in safety measures, putting in measures that make culture better, end up costing all competitors the same. So sure, goods and services end up costing more than if they were made in more of a roughshod way. But that cost is spread around. And now the people who work in the factory have more money and more health, which means that they can afford to pay more for the things they buy. This has been going on for centuries. It should no longer be controversial. There are two ways for the free market to proceed. One way is to dismantle oversight, to say buyer beware about all things, to race to the bottom. And there are certainly places in the world you can go where those are the accepted rules. The other way is to race to the top. And when we race to the top, what we're saying is we have work so we can have culture and life, not the other way around. That it is possible to embrace a fair level playing field in which we get to compete on things like durability, engineering excellence, utility, and the impact of our work on the rest of us. The thing that puzzles me is why the leaders in various industries don't insist on this. Back when I was pioneering email marketing, permission marketing, I testified in Washington, D.C. about spam insisting that we needed regulation to make it against the law to spam people. And the Direct Marketing Association showed up and testified against me. And their argument was, we don't need any regulation. Well, they realized soon after that they were wrong. Because if spam is legal, the people who are going to spam the most are the people with nothing to lose. They're going to pollute the entire medium. The ethical people who are racing to the top and trying to make things better will find themselves having no choice but to chase the people who are trying to tear down the medium. They would have been better off from the start in saying, no, 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 no. We need there to be systems in place to keep this vibrant, to make it work, to only talk to people who want to be talked to. And we can expand from this trivial example to larger ones, ones about health and safety, and cultural well-being. So, yeah, I think there are plenty of ways that we can put more rules in place. Hockey and football don't work if you don't have refs. 
people are really bad at calling their own fouls. Creating a system where it is tempting to anonymously race to the bottom will mean that many people anonymously race to the bottom. I think we can do better than that. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi, it's Bernadette Jiwa, and I'm here to talk to you about the Story Skills Workshop. Why are some people more persuasive than others? What makes one idea succeed where another one falls flat? Why do some businesses thrive where others fail? And what's the one thing you can do to get your message believed, not just noticed, and help your ideas to matter? The simple answer is you can tell a better story. And that's why Seth and I created the Story Skills Workshop to help you discover craft and tell your stories. It's not too late to join us this session. We're ready and waiting to help you to tell better stories. Check it out at thestoryskillsworkshop.com. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.